Welcome to Decode Your Burnout, the podcast where we crack the code on burnout based on three primary factors, your programming, environment, and personality. We also feature experts who debunk the myths about what it takes to be successful in their industry and spin those tips to fit the workplace so you can optimize the way you work. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Grossman, a psychologist turned coach, author, and burnout expert. If you're burned out and want to go from exhausted to extraordinary, book a free breakthrough session with me by going to bookachatwithsharon.com. And if you want to see how you're doing and what to focus on next, download the burnout checklist. You'll find the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly forward slash check your burnout. Now let's get started. Hello, Decode Your Burnout fans, and welcome to another episode with me, Dr. Sharon Grossman. And today we are joined by Emma Codd, who is the Global Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for Deloitte in London. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you may remember that just a few months ago, we recorded an episode on psychological safety. If you didn't catch it, go back and check it out. Well, in her role, Emma leads the firm's strategy on gender balance, LGBT plus inclusion, mental health, disability inclusion, and neurodiversity. This is alongside the development and delivery of thought leadership aligned to the strategy, including the annual Women at Work, a global outlook report. So she joins us back again this time to talk about workplace culture. Emma, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks. Thanks, Sharon. It's great to be back. Speaking of this Women at Work report, the report talks about this always on culture as a challenge. And I know that a lot of my clients often talk about this, whether they're running their own business or they're working for a company. So could you expand on what that means and how it impacts women specifically in the workplace? I can give you a a perspective, sort of some data from the report. Let me can start with that. We've asked this question actually for three years in a row, and it's worse this year. Mm. It's gone down to, I think, just over a third of women feel effectively able to switch off from work. And that was down from sort of mid 40% the previous years. So what does that effectively mean? I have to say, I'm probably prone to this, but I think for me, it's me that drives it rather than the workplace. If I'm really Mm. honest, and rather than a team culture, I find a habit I got into during the pandemic was because my laptop was effectively to start with on the kitchen table because I had nowhere else to work until I stole my children's playroom and converted it into an office. But I would always walk past and I think, oh, I better just check that nothing's come in. And then, of course, I'm the sort of person that is incapable of not responding in the moment, I'm literally the sort of person that it will go around and around my head. So I just think I might as well just with it now, which frankly is not the best approach. And I also believe firmly that if you do that, you get into a habit, then you set expectations of others as well. If I sort of look at many people and women around me, it is this possibly a habit we got into during the pandemic that didn't go, or it's something that's driven even more possibly by economic environment and circumstances and there's possibly that thought oh if there's going to be job losses or I want to be seen as really responsive and I don't want to be seen as the person that's not responding 
immediately. And the reality is it's not a healthy culture, frankly, to feel like you should have to respond and also for an expectation of any leader that you should respond. I mean, I find with me, I work, I have a global role. I could, and I did when I first got this role, I worked, my hours I worked were ridiculous because I just didn't get it right. I sat there and I thought, oh, I need to be talking to Asia Pacific. And then in the evening, I'd be talking to the US. And that's not sustainable. Not sustainable for a long period. I would say possibly sustainable for a short period. We all have those moments in work where we all have to put in the extra. But, you know, that's sustainable for a short time. I think what this report is telling us is that we've now got into a situation where this is really a norm. This isn't something that's unusual. This is sadly a norm. And I think, look, it takes two things. And I am absolutely never somebody that blames the person. But I do think, as with many things, sometimes it takes a bit of knowing who we are and changing our habits. And at the same time, on the other side, it requires really inclusive leadership and an inclusive culture. It's not enough to have something on your footer that says you don't need email footer, that says you don't need to respond. I do have that on mine. And I don't expect a response. But I think there are some people possibly that have it on their email footer and do ex- expect a response. And so I think it's changing that mm. mindset on both mm-hmm. sides. You've touched on a number of really important issues. And yes, this always on culture is something that we see a lot more of these days. I think it's become pretty much the norm, as you said. And I think to your point, yes, sometimes it's the culture of the workplace because there's expectations that you're going to just like get stuff done no matter how long it's going to take. But, and this is really the more important piece of it, I think, as it pertains to us here today, is that a lot of times that expectation is coming from within. So maybe we can call that our inner culture and the expectations that we're setting for other people. Now, one of the things that I actually work on with my clients is to set expectations that they're not going to respond. So you talked about like, maybe there's going to be this perception and people are going to think like, oh my God, this person's not responding. And what does that mean about them? And all that, it really does come down to expectations. And so my clients will actually put in their email signature. I only check email at let's say 10.30 a.m. and 3.30 p.m. or whatever the thing is, right? You kind of have to make it up yourself uh, based on your workflow and what you want to get done. Because ultimately, what we do know from neuroscience is that in the morning, you have the biggest burst of attention and energy. If you're going to spend that on email, then by the time you're done with that and you're trying to then get into your workflow, it's going to be a lot harder to focus. Right. So there's that. And obviously, like also the constant interruption that just gets in the way of being able to focus. So I think a lot of it is about, first of all, the expectation that we have of ourselves to always be on. And then the expectations that we set through our behaviors so that other people know what to expect from us. And I think that if we're clear at the get go, like with those email signatures, for instance, then we are set training people to know what to expect rather than expecting us to always be available. I love what you're saying and the whole point about setting expectations and being really clear. And I will tell you that I definitely don't do that. And I'm my own most enemy. I really try to. I try and be a role model for my team and others. But I am definitely the sort of person I've often wondered whether it's a bit of FOMO. There's a bit of sort of fear of missing out on opportunity. And I think for women sometimes, you know, sometimes it takes us longer to get there. We have to fight 
for opportunities, certainly from my perspective, with my sort of career path, I've really had to grab stuff when it's come in. And I think that ingrains itself in our brains. I'm now considerably older than when I had to do that. But the problem is, I think sometimes that that doesn't go. And so I do think setting expectations with others. And look, we talk a lot, and I've always talked about the success of flexible working and what makes it successful. And it's sort of very similar. It's basically making sure you're being really clear and that both sides really understand. And then it's also judging on output and knowing that you don't have to always be on to produce exactly, basically to produce great work. And But again, I think sometimes our own experiences in our careers, as someone in a minority, it is this thing of, oh, what if I miss out? If I don't respond now. Right. And so, you know, I, I do think that's part of it is our experiences shape how we approach these things. And then I think to your point, you then need to be really conscious of it actually take really firm clear actions that's the bit i need to do okay so based in our podcast show here we have these three burnout profiles that we talk about we've got the thinker the feeler and the doer i'm curious if you can find yourself in one of them and my sense is that you're probably the doer the person who's like as you say always on always kind of trying to accomplish something right really focus on quantity as opposed to one of the other two, because what you're saying about the FOMO to me sounds very much like something a doer would experience. And maybe there's crossover here, but I'm thinking like the thinkers are probably going to be the people who are always on because they're worried about what other people are going to think. So that's the, the perception piece of it. I feel like the feelers would probably be always on because they have guilt about not taking care of other people. If I don't do this and this other person's gonna be slowed down and I'm gonna be the jam, the cog in the wheel or whatever. Like, I kind of wonder about that. Like if you can speak on I'm, that. I think I am a feeler and a doer. Okay. So I think I am very much probably too much sometimes about the impact on somebody else yeah and I will find you know you sort of look at it and think well why out why am I as much of a doer possibly as I am and I would say a chunk of that is because I worry about the impact on colleagues and team members probably more than I worry about that on myself and my husband it's a bugbear with my husband he's always mm. saying why is it that you're the one that's right. doing this where so I think it's a combination of two I'm not sure I fit well that's definitely the, a feeler that's um, definitely a feeler if you're doing that right because it's like why are you doing it is really like the premise right so that's interesting and thank you for sharing that because I think it gives perspective for other people who are in that state of always being on to think about what's behind that is it really the workplace culture that's demanding that of you or are you demanding that of yourself and if it's the latter then what's really behind it? Is it FOMO? Is it guilt? Is it the worry about other people's perception of you? And when you kind of can figure that out, then you can maybe go from there and, and figure out how to get to the other side of it. So that's yeah. really interesting. And for me, Farron, look, I can tell you 100%, and I'm not just saying this, it is not the workplace culture here. I'm here because I love this culture. It's one of the reasons I've gone anywhere else. And so I... It's definitely not that interestingly. I would say with, sadly, there are probably many people 
and many women that would say it is driven by workplace culture as well. Mm. Whereas I can safely say it's all on me. It's not the culture. Right. So where you work, it might not be the case, but the report that you did was surveying women from all different workplaces. And so you've gotten data on what other people are experiencing. And obviously we don't know how much of it is like self-driven and how much it's really the culture. But what we do know is that they did report a lot of stress and burnout and they did report some specific elements around the culture. So tell us a little bit about what specifically they're saying related to workplace culture and what can companies do to foster a more inclusive, respectful and supportive culture so that women feel more psychologically safe to thrive? I love that question. Okay, so let's say what does the report tell us about culture? So it's that there are a number of questions that you look at and you think, okay, this answers. And as you say, these are all non-Deloitte, all people outside Deloitte. Yes. Um, when I talk about my own experiences, there are the, you know, I'm talking about Deloitte, but this is not the you know, experiences of women at Deloitte. So what are the things that give us an insight, you know, into culture? I suppose the first one is, well, you've got the always on finding we've already talked about. So we put that to one side. Mm-hmm. But we've then what really concerned me about this year, and this is 5,000 women across 10 countries, is this real concern about talking about their mental health at work mm. or giving the real reason for taking time off. That was down to a quarter from mid 40% from the previous year. That's a massive drop. Okay. So that to me has to be, or is most likely going to be around culture. So we've got the mental health bit. Before you continue, I just want to understand. So when you say only a quarter, meaning 25% of women feel safe enough to talk about mental health and the other 75% don't. Yep, exactly. I mean, that's so stark. You're right. So a quarter of women felt comfortable talking about mental health at work and only a quarter of women gave the real reason when they took time off for mental health reasons. Yeah. That's, That's staggering. So that is just a minority. The interesting thing to me is that is down from the previous year. So what is it that's changed? Again, what's driving this? And I do come back to, is this to do with with economic environment? Is there something else in addition to culture? So I'm sure culture plays a part in this without a doubt, because there are other findings that, that also indicate challenges around that. We've got findings around women's health. So we've got 40% of the women that suffer from menstrual pain and discomfort saying they don't tell anyone and they just sit and work through what is often a very severe pain. And I say that as somebody that suffered endometriosis for a huge part of my life. And I was one of those women. Now for Mm. me, it wasn't interestingly, why didn't I speak up? I mean, I was in severe pain for sort of half the month. Why didn't I speak up? Honestly, it was not the culture around me. It was my own stigma it was my self stigma it was my embarrassment it was the embarrassment of using the word period to right. what was a vastly male leadership and having to talk to them about what endometriosis was and i think there's a mix there and if you didn't give the real reason why and it does range from a sort of lack of personal comfort but also cultural that fear about how they'll be judged which again comes into the sort of psychological safety side yeah, And then the final bit for me 
is the non-inclusive behaviours side of it, which to me speaks of culture. It probably speaks the loudest, frankly. So it's not only that 44% of women have experienced some form of harassment or microaggression, most typically microaggressions in a workplace context in the previous 12 months, but it's those that report, it's still less than half that experience it are reporting it. Now, some are reporting because they don't feel it's serious enough, but that also speaks to culture because an organizational culture should be saying it is always serious enough. It's, you know, and, and then providing practical routes where if it doesn't feel serious enough to go to HR, that's fine, but you need another route. You need a, maybe a less formal route where you, you can still raise it. And so to me, that is the sort of other part of it as well. You know, not only these behaviours should not be happening. And at the same time, where you do experience it, you should always feel able to basically to speak to somebody and address it. Otherwise, it doesn't stop. And that, to me, is one of the big challenges we've got yeah. with this. Okay, so you've mentioned three things that really impact probably all people, but especially women. That's what we're looking at here specifically. One is that always on culture. The other is menstrual pain and the embarrassment that comes with it, especially as you say, in a vastly male leadership and the non-inclusive behaviors and microaggressions that happen as part of the culture. Does Deloitte either have some solutions identified or in the report where you guys asking for these women to suggest how this could be resolved? We don't ask because it's a survey and it's a very in-depth survey. So what we do is we analyze the data and we found this really, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but, but we found this group of women, it's very small groups, mm-hmm. 5% of the survey respondents that actually report the opposite to the concerning data I've just gone through. They report very positive experiences. They report being feeling very supported around sort of women's health issues. They report very low experience of non-inclusive behaviours and they feel able to speak up. And the interesting thing there is you then look at, well, what is it that these women are also saying about their employer? Now, we don't know the employer's names, I hasten to add, okay? So we just know what these women are telling us mm-hmm. about the things that they experience in the workplace. And we've found three core enablers. And the first one, which you will love, is culture. So truly inclusive, respectful culture, and an everyday culture, fully embedded. The second one, which actually to me links to culture, but it's like proactively enabling work-life balance. And that, again, often comes down to culture, but it also comes down to inclusive leadership. And then the final one is their organizations provide development and progression opportunities that are meaningful, which effectively speaks, yes, to culture, speaks to many other things, though, as well. It speaks to somebody actually caring. It speaks to sponsorship. It speaks to all the things that we know to be a good thing, but don't happen enough, frankly, in organizations. So in terms of the recommendations, we have six recommendations. And one of them is to learn from these what we call gender equality leaders and to really look at these enablers and think about, do you have that within your own organization? And then we really push on adequate mental health support. This is a real problem. If women are showing such high levels of stress, anxiety, and they don't feel that they can be open about it at work. And right. also that means the employer has no idea 
and what's going on there. They may be sitting there thinking, we don't have an issue with mental health. And the reality is that they may well do. And then for me, there's this on the women's health side, it's just talking about it. And it's really, that's a big thing for us on our approach on mental health. You know, three years ago, we didn't really use the words mental health. We talk about well-being, we talk about it through some using other, maybe resilience, other words, but actually we wanted right. to use those words. And there was a certain stigma attached to them, not in our organisation, but in countries where we just wanted to try and change that. And we want to say, you've got your physical, you've got your mental, and they're both on a spectrum. And there are things that you need to know about and need to do. And most of all, we need to talk about it. So that's been a big push for us. We've done the same on menopause and on women's health. And we're starting to talk about wider aspects of women's health. And when I talk about women, obviously, I'm doing some, you know, non-binary individuals, trans, transgender people as well and for us it's so important that we are talking about it and then that we have policies on it so you have to have the policies you have to have things and resources but but you also need people to, be able to find those resources and then you need people to feel comfortable talking about it whether it's to hr or to their leader and you need to equip the leader with knowledge enough knowledge that they can have a conversation and signpost someone to resource. That's been a big focus for us on some of these issues that tend to have more stigma attached. And I think that's a commonality amongst some of these is the level of stigma that is attached that by talking about it and normalizing the conversation, you can help to remove that stigma. I love that you guys have these six recommendations. And so far, if I'm tracking, you said the first one is that they have to learn from these gender equality leaders about yep. the three things that work, right? Yep. The, the inclusive culture, the work-life balance, and the development opportunities that are offered. The yep. second recommendation is adequate mental health support and being able to just talk about it freely yep. so that people feel safe about it. And the third recommendation out of the six is to talk about women's health specifically, have policies, resources, and knowledgeable leaders that can speak on this topic or that when you come and talk to them, they know what you're talking about and that it's a real thing. Exactly. And then the final three are flexible working, but I don't just mean have a few policies. Again, it drives to culture. I mean, enable it. We know it is a good thing. Now it yeah. requires trust. It requires amazing inclusive leadership and all of those things. But we know that flexible working is good. We know it works for business. We know it works for individuals, but still so many people feel judged if they take it. They feel it's career limiting. And again, I'm talking about people outside my organization rather than within. Sure. And then the other two recommendations are around you know, understanding the impact of intersectionality. Because honestly, one of the things, the, the critical findings of our report was the impact when you look at it through an intersectional lens. So we were able to basically analyze data through the lens of LGBT+. Plus, women and also women who are in a racial and ethnic minority in their home country and the terrible worrying findings that we've talked about let me tell you they are worse for those women so those women report far higher data when it comes to experience of non-inclusive behaviors they're reporting far worse data when it comes to mental health mm -hmm. they're reporting less they feel less supported when it comes to physical health you name it it's worse and so that's our fifth recommendation. Now, in order to do that, your people have to trust you. And again, this comes back to culture. 
your people have to trust you to voluntarily report their data. Who, who am I? How do I identify? My data is very important to me and I need to really trust. If I'm going to tell somebody right. who I am and how I identify, I want to know that that data is going to be used properly. Now, in order to do that, you need trust. You need a culture of psychological safety. And then the final point for us is around non-inclusive behaviours. Honestly, I just feel like I get really boring on this. I've been talking about this for years. It's just not acceptable. We cannot have these levels. It's got to stop. It has to stop. We cannot be subjected to this actually in wider society as well as within the workplace. Um, but when it does happen, we need to feel safe reporting it. Now, we're in a workplace perspective, that's feeling safe to report it without penalty. And actually, from outside, for me, sitting in the UK, it's safe to report it to the authorities. And it comes back to psychological safety. Yeah. So many of these things. Yeah. So just to recap, the last three recommendations were flexible working. Fifth one was around the impact of your sexuality. Of, of intersectionality. So understand, from an intersectional perspective. So the way that each of us identifies, I identify multiple ways. What our data is showing is that this has an impact. We're not just about one whammy from being a woman. We're talking about two or three on top of that. The data clearly shows that's a a challenge, a big problem. Yeah, because they've got like the physical challenges that men don't experience right with their periods they've got the gender thing and now if they've got like any sort of sexual deviation from the norm kind of things then that kind of can lead to more oppression more lack of inclusion in other ways microaggressions etc so there's that yeah it's all the biases that exist the the hideous biases that are out there that come into play based on what we visually see so why do a number of people still choose not to be out about their sexual orientation in the workplace? Right. Well, they, they choose not to be out because on the whole, they are concerned about how they would be regarded by colleagues or by leaders. Right. And imagine if you can't be who you are at work, what's yeah. that going to do? It's, you're going to be so much less productive, less engaged, less happy. And just like really chronically stressed, which leads to burnout. Yeah, you know? we need to that sort of utopia of be free to be who we are. But unfortunately, exactly. for so many people, that's not the case. And because of entrenched yeah. bias and issues. So what you're saying is, as part of these six recommendations, there's different kinds of non-inclusive behaviors. Part of it has to do with women's health. Part of it has to do with their intersectionality. And part of it has to do just more globally, like all other non-inclusive behaviors. Is that number six? Yeah, so number six is basically just address them, call them out, be an ally. As an organisation, everybody should have and hopefully has anti-harassment policies, anti-discrimination policies, anti-retaliation policies. Well, you know what? People should feel safe to use those policies. They should feel safe to speak up. They should see action being taken where it's warranted. All of those things we need to know and we need to know that, again, that, that we feel safe to do that. I do feel safe in my own organisation, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But this data is telling us that there are many women that don't feel yeah. safe to speak up. 
And what do they think is going to happen? Well, they think they won't be taken seriously. They think the issue won't be taken seriously or they think there'll be a um, career penalty. And in some cases, they think it'll just make the behaviour worse. So this can't just be done by a head of HR or people either. This has to be embedded within the DNA of an organisation. It needs to be a foundation of who an organisation is, basically. Yeah. So if somebody is listening to this and they're like, yeah, that's me. Like I'm the person sitting in this company. I'm feeling like they don't get me or it's not safe for me or I'm not getting my needs met and I have to hide who I am or the kind of struggles that I'm experiencing, whether it's mental health or physical health, or it's about, you know, just who I am as a person, because I'm a little bit different from maybe the norm. And maybe it is a uh, largely male leadership, or you just, for whatever reason, don't feel safe. What can those individuals do? Are there resources that you can point them to? And I know we talk largely about what companies should do to help with this culture, but what can people do to help themselves? That's a really good question. Look, I always think allyship, finding an ally. I'm very proud to be an ally for many people who are in underrepresented groups. And so I think there's a big thing, find somebody that can help elevate your voice, elevate your views, can basically give you some of that psychological safety that you need. I also think an employee resource group, um, in some countries they're known as networks, employee networks. Hopefully most organizations have these now. It's an opportunity to meet other people outside your day job. And often people identify in the same way that you identify. So that's often within the company. But I would also say externally, there are some amazing networks out there. So whatever sector you're in, just have a look and see if there is an external network that where you can just spend some time, you know, get to know other people. And then my final point would be, honestly, if you're really in a situation where you don't feel psychologically safe and where you really don't hold out any hope that that's going to change, then I would say maybe think about over time looking at whether there's an employer that would help you engage, make you feel safe. There are lots of companies that work so hard on their culture and work so hard to do this. So that would be the other option. Yeah. And thank you so much for that, because I'm always happy to hear about how companies can improve, but I also think it's important to bring it back to the individuals and empower them to find solutions for themselves until companies kind of catch up. Uh, So uh, Emma, this has been really tremendous. I'm so glad that you are doing the work that you're doing, that you're able to come back and give us actual data about what's happening, about the solutions that are working and some recommendations of what both companies and individuals can do to get to the other side of this. Thanks for for, having me. Yeah, you're welcome. And so for people who maybe want to look at that report themselves, where can they find it? So if you go on to Deloitte.com, so www.deloitte.com, it's there. That's on our company website. Alternatively, if you want to follow me on LinkedIn, Emma Cod, an unusual name, so there's not too many of us. So again, if you want to follow me and then you can get the link through that as well. Wonderful. So we'll have both of those in the show notes. And once again, Emma, thank you so much for coming and sharing your 
wonderful research with all of us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, for all of you thinkers out there, what did you think of the show? If you are a feeler, how did hearing this make you feel? And for all of you doers, what are you going to do based on what you've heard? Now, regardless of what your personality code is, my goal is to spread the word that burnout is a unique experience. And by decoding it, you can find solutions that are equally unique to you. Help me spread this message by subscribing to the show on Apple or Spotify and leaving us a review telling us what you think, feel, or do differently because of the show. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can also leave a comment or questions to answer in future episodes. And please recommend the show to anyone struggling with burnout. If you are ready to take the next step with me to DYB, go to decodeyourburnout.com and I'll see you right back here next week. Bye, everybody.